So starting a new series today called Love Strong. And the tagline on this is actually a Bible verse, believe it or not. And that Bible verse comes from 1 Corinthians 1.25. The weakness of God is stronger than the greatest of human strength. The weakness of God is stronger than the greatest of human strength. This isn't saying that God in God's weakest moment, when God is feeling really tired and worn out, that even that is way stronger than the greatest human strength. No, this is saying that the MO, the modus operandi of God being humble, that weak position is greater than the greatest strength of humanity in the world. It's incredibly provocative. This comes at the tail end after Paul is talking about the very work of Jesus on a cross. Who, for the glory set before him, disregarded its shame and found himself taking the full endurance of everything that it had to be in silence that the spotlight of the world would be on him, that we would look and see what was happening in his humility and recognize the error of our ways that we would kill such an innocent one. And we're still talking about it today. This one who was the embodiment of peace, the prince of peace we call him. That is the weakness of God we're talking about. So we're going to do some weird things today. And the first weird thing we're going to do because uh, one of the things that Paul talks to uh, this church in Corinth about is how they do communion. And communion's done in a lot of ways. Uh, we're very familiar with looking at the bread and the cup as the broken body, the shed blood uh, for the forgiveness of sins. End of the day, what is that communicating? That God is graceful, that you are loved by God, period. But that's not the direction we're going today. We're going to go a different direction that is equally biblical, which was probably extremely common in the early church. So it's on your table, and what I'd like you to do is just open it it up so you can be noisy right now and grab it. You have some cups there and you've got this gluten-free, uh, it's either an apple pie stuffed oat bite or uh, might be a strawberry thing, I can't remember exactly. We're not kidding around here today. No little tasteless cracker, no sir. And you're welcome just to enjoy it. I'll take a little bite now if you want. There's a reason I chose this today. And the reason I chose it has to do with this picture. These four college freshmen, David Richmond, Franklin McCain, Ezel A. Blair Jr., and Joseph McDeal on February 1, 1960, went up to a Woolworths counter in North Carolina and just asked for an order of coffee and donuts. By the way, this is either the worst tasting grape juice you'll ever have or it's sweetened coffee. So enjoy it. So we're honoring the memory of these four Jesus followers. These four Jesus followers uh, who decided to challenge in their resistance, nonviolent resistance, the status quo. The status quo being Woolworths was happy to sell them products, but not okay selling them food or serving them food. And they didn't think that that really lived up to the United States Constitution's uh, statements of equality and all men cre being created equal, having equal rights under the law. And given that our country, uh, especially in 1960, more than any other time in American history, uh, Americans believed this to be a Christian nation 
one nation under God in response to COVID, uh, communism and the Soviet Union that was declaring themselves atheists, the United States uh, with a huge interfaith uh, support, that's when we saw In God We Trust show up on our, on our coinage. It's then. In God We Trust, we say. And yet, four of its own citizens were not allowed <laughs> to eat at a diner in Greensboro, North Carolina. Very, very odd. Well, it turns out this was uh, a very, very Jesus thing to do. Honestly, I don't know if they ever signed off on any uh, form of orthodoxy uh, or any statement of faith. But what I do know is that Jesus did the very same kinds of things. And therefore, they were following in the footsteps of Jesus, a la Jesus' followers. You know, when the early church got together, uh, they uh, remembered that Jesus said, every time you eat this, I want you to remember me. And it's interesting. If you look at hospitality in the New Testament with Jesus, and of course in the Old Testament as well, uh, but in Jesus' story, uh, you see lots of stories that revolve some way around bread or cup or both of those things. And I think as they would eat together, they would remember some of these things too. Uh, we're in Black History Month, as you probably figured out, and the theme this year uh, is resistance, which some of us may gristle at that idea a little bit because of our ideas about what resistance may mean, but I want to tell you already, you are people of resistance. You didn't run out of here when we uh, started singing songs that normally wouldn't be sung in a church. You didn't head for the hills when you noticed that, when you figured out that this was communion and not a regular uh, tasteless cracker and uh, grape juice or wine. Uh, and you're even here. You understand that just being here is a subtle form of resistance because you've chosen to come here together to be community, uh, trying to grow in a different way of being. To say, I want to know what it means to understand God and to live in God, which is countercultural. You are the people of the resistance, even if you didn't know it. And there's lots of resistance types things that happen uh, in the story of Jesus. This is uh, known as the wedding of Canaan. And uh, this is where Jesus multiplies, uh, you know, um, or changes uh, these big jugs uh, of water uh, that were used for ceremonial cleaning at this wedding festival. Uh, it was probably a relative of his. And he changed them all to wine. Not just any old wine, not two buck chuck, but to the greatest wine that the wine steward had ever tasted. And so what was he doing? Was this just a cool party trick that he was trying to do? Or was he just doing it to upset teetotaling Baptists all over the world? No. He did this because he was making a statement, a theological statement, that God's party has already started. That God's wine is way better than anything this world has to offer and that God's party will never end. This is part of the message of Jesus that he's getting there, and that is a resistance. You may not recognize the political dimensions of this, but this was at a time when Rome was coming through saying, we are the bearers of good news. We hold your salvation in our hands. Thank God, thank us, thank Rome for being here today because we are the ones who are taking care of you. And Jesus is saying, in the face of Rome, which was all around them, that's a lie. And because the real source of our joy and our strength and our hope is in God. This was an act of resistance even against Rome, as subtle as it might be. Well, there's another time uh, where we can catch up with Jesus, and let's see. Oh, this is one of my favorite stories. 
So this is Jesus uh, in Samaria, where he should not have been, uh, talking to a person he should not have been talking to for two reasons. One, she was a she, and uh, good rabbis would never do that uh, in public like this, and he's the one that started the conversation. But also, she was a Samaritan. And the greatest boiled down what Jesus is saying to her in this amazing exchange, it's an incredible exchange, this story. Basically, he's saying to this woman who has a past which has caused her to feel extremely isolated from her community, really quite hopeless and alone, as this Jesus of ours is saying to her, God loves you, and God is spirit, and God is celebrated and honored in spirit and truth. She had a different religion than Jesus, and Jesus did not rebuke her for it. He actually found room for agreement with her. When they, she wanted to argue about where is God to be worshipped, he just simply says, God is spirit. Uh, there's going to come a time where we're not worshipping on the Jewish mountain or the Samaritan's mountain because the true worshippers are going to worship in spirit and in truth. This was a, a shared drink, water, of resistance. Resistance over prejudice and resistance over narrow religion which seeks to separate and divide instead of re-ligamenting, re-ligamenting religion bringing people together. It's a resistance party. Here's a meal that is well known uh, for Jesus. This is where he feeds 5,000 people. Um, we're not quite sure which miracle happened. Uh, I have my guesses. Uh, did he uh, miraculously take a boy's lunch and somehow from that sack lunch more and more fish just kept popping out of there and same with bread so that it fed five whole thousand people or did something else happen? Well, I would suggest that the greater story here that we can resonate with a lot today is that don't underestimate the power of selflessness. It has the potential to feed thousands with plenty to spare. Another way to think about this as a miracle is here's a young boy who uh, hap he's happy to have his lunch and he sees Jesus and he chooses to offer it. And when the surrounding people who would have packed food for the day, uh, when they saw the generosity of this young boy, it stirred them to also open up their picnic baskets so that anybody who was running short, who had more month than money, who couldn't make it to in and out and back uh, with their burgers could eat. And the way it played out is people were so generous that, that day that 12 basketballs of food were collected afterwards and given to Crosswalk's food pantry. <laughs> well, I don't know about that last part, but you get the point. This is an act of resistance, and it's a resistance against a scarcity mindset. It's against a, 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 a hoarding mentality, all because one boy decided to be generous. Uh, this is another uh, incredible story. Um, in this situation, you have Jesus with some religious leaders. Jesus was from the Pharisaic uh, tradition, and other Pharisees uh, were really shocked about some of his teaching because he was really thinking out of the box. And a couple of Pharisees invited him uh, to dinner one time at one of their homes, and there's this woman that somehow sneaks in, and she just starts weeping at his feet. And she's weeping so hard that the tears are falling on Jesus' feet. And she's cleaning Jesus' feet uh, with her hair. And the other Pharisees there are really disgusted that she's even in the room because she was a known immoral woman of some sort. 
Jesus knew what was going on inside their head and called them to account. And he basically said, you know, you guys, you didn't even have anything for me to wash my feet uh, before I came in, which was a big offense uh, back in that day. But this woman, uh, she hasn't, uh, she's been washing my feet with her tears and her hair. What do you have to say for yourself? And what he was getting at here, uh, he eventually says, and this is what started to get him in some troubles, he said, uh, she has loved me much in this moment because she has been forgiven much. And at that, the Pharisees are like, wait a minute, are you saying that her sins are forgiven? And so then Jesus just looks right at her and says, woman, your sins are forgiven, which may not seem like a big deal uh, to you and me who are so comfortable with the grace of God. But back in that day and age, for Jesus just to say it like that, without any transaction being required, was absolutely shocking. This is a resistance to that very transactional way of thinking. What Jesus was trying to communicate, and I think he did it effectively, and he did it with his whole life. It's the grace of God, the forgiveness of God that you long for, the love of God for you, is not transactional. You don't have to do anything to get God to love you, to forgive you. Uh, this is a, a story that shows up again when the woman was caught in adultery and people wanted to stone her. That story almost didn't make it in the Gospel of John because it was too provocative. Because Jesus pronounced forgiveness before she had a chance to ask for it. But this is the grace of God. It is always there. The question for us is, are we willing to open ourselves to that grace, to that love, to let it do its transforming work? Are we even aware of it? Will we believe it when we are? That's the power. And this woman got it through Jesus' teaching and could not help herself in her behavior. This was a meal, another meal of resistance against two narrow ways of thinking. We go on to another one. This is a kind of a variation on a theme here. Um, this one is a radical story, uh, again, um, because of two things. One, uh, who is at the dinner table. One of the people at this table, I'm guessing the guy in white is Jesus, and I'm guessing the guy right in front of him across the table, his name is Lazarus. Lazarus, just a few days before this, was dead. According to the Gospel of John, he'd been dead four days, was entombed. When Jesus rolls into town, the shortest verse in the Bible shows up, Jesus wept. Part of the reason why that is such an amazing verse is because the weeping uh, was really an angry weeping of Jesus, not the mourning of a friend who's been lost, but angry that the power of death was clouding over the life which was already there and already in abundance. He was angry at the situation. Jesus wept. And he went over to the tomb and he asked them to roll the stone away. And he calls into this tomb, take this however you want, you, however you want. if you want to go literal, great. If not, just hear the point of the story. He calls to the tomb, Lazarus come out, and the gospel tells us Lazarus came out. And several days later, here they are having dinner. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what that would be like? Lazarus' sister Mary, who was single and had a dowry that someday would help her get married, opened up that very expensive perfume made of pure nard, which is a lovely name for a perfume. <laughs> pure nard and pours it uh, over Jesus uh, as an expression of 
uh, of love, of gratitude, uh, because her brother is right there. It's a resistance to death itself, and it's a resistance to stingy thinking that we've got to hold on to everything instead of being open and sharing. Now, Jesus, um, I don't know if he knew for sure exactly how things were going to roll out. I think he knew that he was going to be facing uh, some real, real trouble and probably death. But I don't know that he saw this coming. But I know he didn't forget it. As I've taught before, I think one of the most beautiful things about this gift, this pure nard, which had to fill the room, maybe the whole block, with the smell of this beautiful perfume, while Jesus is hanging on the cross, he's struggling to breathe. That was part of the torture of it. Was it was hard to breathe when you're hung up on a cross. And eventually your lungs fill with water and you suffocate. But with every struggling breath, Jesus was reminded of the love of Mary. Because the nard kept coming up to his nose. What a gift. What a gift. Well, uh, the very night that he would be arrested and would lead to his death, uh, Jesus was with the disciples. Uh, you're pretty familiar with this scene, uh, the Last Supper. Uh, what I didn't show here, because I wanted it to just to be familiar, is that before they really got into the dinner, Jesus recognized that uh, there was no foot washer. And so Jesus himself, you know the story, uh, put a towel around his waist and went around to every disciple and washed their feet himself, which had to be incredibly unnerving. This is something you hired a servant or a slave to do, uh, probably not a Jewish person, uh, because it's just so demeaning and degrading. And here, here he is, their leader, uh, that is doing this for them. Peter even scoffed at it. You're not going to touch me, you know, he says to Jesus. Peter's great at sticking his foot in his mouth. And Jesus is like, uh, if you're not going to let me do this, you can have no part of me. And he's like, well, then can you give me a whole bath then? You know, I mean, he, gee, that was just Peter. He's just kind of an idiot sometimes. Most Peters are kind of idiots you know, a lot of the time. So that's how it works. Well, what does Jesus say after all this is done? He says, so you watched me uh, wash your feet. I'm your master. I'm your leader. Uh, so if you're really my follower, then you do as I do. And what's he saying here with this move? He's saying that if you want to be uh, if you want to be good among others, if you want to be great, uh, then you serve each other. And if you really want to be the greatest, you must be the slave of all. This is the weakness of God. This is the weakness of God. One of the reasons why I wanted to do this Love Strong series is because as we've been growing and understanding our, our theology, our ethos, our theological ethos of crosswalk, where we look at love as God's primary characteristic between two competing characteristics of power and love. Whenever I talk about, as Tom Ord talks about and others in Open and Relational Theology, talk about love being the primary characteristic of God, the number one pushback I get on that is, doesn't that make God weak? No, right. And what Jesus is saying is, you're not getting it. The way of power in this world is no match for the deep love of God. Never has been. It never will be. Power does not transform. You cannot be forced 
to be changed. But love, love woos it out of us. Love empowers us to become our true selves, to become the people that we're called to be. This was a, uh, a resistance dinner against the very power structures that people were familiar with. This is a dinner uh, after Easter. Uh, Jesus uh, said to the disciples, hey, go on up to Galilee, our old fishing hunt, and I'll meet you up there in a few days. And so Jesus goes up there. They're out fishing all night, not catching a thing. Jesus says to them, they don't know it's Jesus on the shore. He says, hey, try throwing your nets out one more time. Uh, they humor him, they do, and they get this massive catch, and they, and they realize, oh, that guy on the shore is probably Jesus. So uh, again, Peter does something weird. He was fishing naked, apparently, because he throws on his robe to jump in the water to swim to Jesus first. <laughs> uh, what a, that's crazy. We're going to have a good time. Uh, anyway, um, he gets there. They get there. Jesus has already um, made breakfast for them. He's already got fish on the fire for them, having breakfast, and this is this great experience. And then after, everybody's kind of uh, chilling out a little bit. There's some other weird, interesting things about that uh, story. But Jesus has a, a conversation with Peter. Peter, who had denied knowing Jesus three times in a row before he was killed. Jesus asked Peter now three times in a row, Peter, do you love me? Yeah, Lord, sure I love you. Buddy? No, Peter. You love me, though? Um, yeah. Yeah, I love you. What's going on? Hey, Pete. Seriously? Do you love me? And at that point, the light bulb goes on for Peter. Uh, whoo. I love you, Lord. And you can just hear, you can feel the emotion in this exchange. He didn't have to say, I feel like such a moron. He didn't have to say, I'm so sorry. It was all just right there. And Jesus restores him, brings him back in officially so the disciples and Peter could recognize that he had a place still even after denying even knowing Jesus. It's powerful stuff. And then Jesus goes on to tell him, hey, I got to tell you, Pete, uh, it's not going to be so great for you. Uh, your, your, your retirement, it's not going to be what you were dreaming of. It's probably going to come a day when you get a similar fate as I did. And Peter his humanity roaring back, change back attack, roaring back, uh, saying to Jesus, well, well, okay, but does Lauren have to go through that too? Because I'm only cool with it if Lauren has to go through it too, except for he was talking about John. And Jesus kind of got in his face again and says, what business is that is yours? Peter, follow me. And so this was a resistance again to what uh, people thought uh, a couple different ways. One, a resistance to the, the idea that the point is power, the point is not power, and it's also a resistance to the idea, and this is a really touchy one in our culture right now, it was even a bit of a resistance to what we might call cancel culture, that people are irredeemable, that we really don't believe that once a person commits a foul, there is a, there is a way for them to be restored and transformed into a new creation or a renewed creation altogether. 
We really struggle with this as our culture. We just cut people off. And it's ruining lives and ruins lives. I've experienced it. I've been the brunt of it. I've probably done it. It's part of who we are. And Jesus here with his disciples is saying that's just not the way of grace. That's just not the way of grace. Well, Paul, um, this was ancient Corinth, and he was writing. He wrote actually four letters to Corinth. We have two of them in our New Testament. And uh, this early church needed to be reminded uh, what the meal was meant to remember, this communion that you're sharing, uh, that we are people of the way of Jesus. Now, what was going on here is Paul went into this uh, town and started up this new church, and things were going great. They're, they're hearing from Paul, right? I mean, this guy knows his stuff, and he feels like they've got it down pretty well, and he travels on. He spent like a year with them, kind of making sure everything was set and leadership in place, and then he took off to do some more work. And then he hears uh, from a letter from one of the family members uh, in that church. And the family member is telling him some disturbing things. So Paul writes a letter back and he says, Hey, I, I heard some things. I heard that some of you of wealth are getting to the fellowship, getting to the, fam the church family dinner, the church family communion, the church family meal of remembering Jesus. I heard that some of you who are wealthier are getting there earlier. And the reason why we're sure that they were wealthier is because only the wealthy could get there earlier. If you were working, you were a servant, you were the last to get there because that's your life. Paul goes on further. He says, I understand that you're there, uh, some among you, and you're eating until you're full. You're getting drunk off the wine. And by the time your fellow church members get there to remember this meal of Jesus together, there's no more food, there's no more wine, and they're going away hungry. And Jesus basically says to them, how is that the way of Jesus? It is not the way of Jesus. In fact, it offends Jesus because Jesus was all about getting everybody around the table to make sure everybody got the food, everybody got the drink, everybody was around equally to remember. Communion itself, there's a, several books written about this. Communion itself is a form of resistance. A meal, a form of resistance. So I'm thinking about these four guys again. Jesus followers shining a light on America's failure to live up to its declaration as well as its stated faith in God. You've already been a people of resistance in several ways today that I already mentioned. I'm wondering, especially in light of Black History Month, how might you resist a little more? Now, some of us hear this, and we're not quite sure what to do. So I got an exercise for you, just a thought exercise. This comes from Martha Beck, but it's a brilliant, uh, brilliant idea. I want you to think about racism and racial prejudice, which uh, is a thing here in uh, the United States. I know that's a sensitive topic, and depending uh, who you're listening to, uh, some say uh, that uh, system, systemic racism is definitely part of the cultural fabric of the United States, and on the other end you have people saying, that's a bunch of woke baloney and don't believe it. Here's what I'm sure we can agree on, that wherever there might be uh, racial prejudice, 
we're not cool with it. Can we agree on that? That human beings are human beings? I think we can agree that that's not okay. And so I want you to think about racial prejudice in America, which is a, could, maybe, <laughs> depending on who you're listening to, could be a side thing that we ought to think about someday, or it could be a major thing, but I want you to think about it because it is a complex issue. Just the fact that people don't even know what to do with it represents its complexity. I want you to think about it. Thinking about it? Now, to yourself, I want you to ask a question. Uh, what do people, in general, need to do to help eliminate racial prejudice? Just think in your mind, what, if people would just do this, then racial prejudice would probably go away. Just don't say it out loud, just think it to yourself. Okay, you got something there? If people would just do this, if this would be done, they would probably fix the problem. Okay. Now here's what I want you to do. I want you to remember that uh, thing. And I want you to think about yourself right now. And I want you to think about um, yourself in relation to this subject of racial prejudice. And I want you to look at the problem um, as embodied in yourself. And here's the tough question to ask. Is there any way in which your treatment of yourself mirrors the problem of racial prejudice in America? For instance, uh, here's a range of things, but uh, one of them is going to deal with prejudice. So if a global issue is like pollution, you may worry about polluting the land and sea, but you still put a lot of toxic substances into your own body. You may hate cruelty to animals, but drive your body, which is an animal, to keep overworking, staying cooped up when it longs to go outside, forcing it to do work that it hates. You may be distressed about poverty while impoverishing yourself by denying yourselves things like relaxation, kindness, play, or free time. You may be angry about some human beings seeing others as inferior while seeing yourself as inferior in some way. How is the advice you gave to the general public? How might it be related to your own healing and your own growth for your own life? With the assumption being that as we tend to ourselves and experience healing and greater wholeness, we are then capable to bring more and more healing and wholeness wherever we go. It's a profound idea. Well, I threw a lot at you, and I'm wondering, uh, out of all these different meals that we talked about, starting with the wedding at Cana, uh, the drink at the well in Samaria, the feeding the 5,000, the immoral woman anointing Jesus' feet, Mary anointing Jesus' feet with this expensive perfume, Jesus washing the feet of the disciples, Jesus restoring Peter after he makes breakfast, Paul's admonition of a church who got things backwards and forgot to follow Jesus, or four guys who are willing to take a risk to shine a spotlight on a problem in America. What's stirring in you today? Let's just take a moment of quiet and silence. I encourage you to close your eyes that we might be more attentive and attuned to what the Spirit might be doing in us. 
Is there one particular story that seemed especially important to you today? Spirit of God, help us. Help us. How did you connect with us today? Spirit of God, help us ask and answer the question, why? Why did that one particular story or one particular point, why did that stick out, perhaps? What was it about it that resonated with us? Maybe for some of you, you lost hope. And to be reminded of the wedding at Cana is to remind you that there's more. No matter what present-day Rome says, it's more and it's better. Maybe some of you feel like that immoral woman or even the woman at the well, and you just so needed to see Jesus act in love and grace because you need it. Maybe some of you are humbled today by the story of the Last Supper and washing feet and Peter's restoration. And there's a part of you that's like, your own hubris has gotten away. Pride has kept you from kneeling in service. Or maybe it was Paul's admonition to Corinth. He kind of forgot that this is supposed to be a shared thing. What spirit? Holy Spirit, help us now to understand what we might do with how we've been messed with today. From what has been resonating with us, what are you calling us to? Maybe it's a self-healing thing. Maybe it's an attitude thing. Maybe it's something we do out in the world. Can you hear the voice of God? Can you hear the still small voice wooing you to action? we want to say that we really, we really want to follow you here. We really want to do right by you here. I believe that to a person. And we want to do right by you, not because of fear of threat if we don't, but because we love you. You have given us life. You've allowed us to live in life, even as this beautiful baby talks to us, reminding us of it. May we be reminded of the beauty of life around us that you have given us. May we follow you forward in your footsteps that we would be truly and fully yours. And to that end, congregation, will you open your eyes and let's uh, say this rendition of the Lord's Prayer together. Our loving, supportive, holy Abba, 
who art here and everywhere. Thy divine commonwealth come. Thy will be done through us. We are grateful for the gift of food and work for all to eat their fill. May we work for a world where mutual grace and respect abound, modeled after you. Strengthen us for the work we're called to. Amen. May it be so.